Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. So in addition to the Commune podcast, I've also started writing a weekly Sunday article called Commusings, where I wax alternately pathetic and poetic around spirituality, philosophy, culture, and family. So for our second podcast episode of this week, I felt appropriate. For our second podcast episode of this week, it felt appropriate to read you some of that introspection, which focuses on our courageous essential workers and highlights one that is very close to home. While I have been writing a weekly thought piece trying to untangle the swirl of philosophies and narratives that surround us, my fellow co-founder Jake Laub has been writing weekly updates on life here at Commune Topanga. A bit of background. When we founded Commune, we wanted to reach millions of people digitally, but we also wanted our content to be grounded in a sense of place a place where the ideas and practices embraced by Commune play out in real life, a place to plant, cook, gather, and test crazy permaculture projects that mostly work out. The result is what we call the lab, 10 acres of oak trees and organic gardens in the Santa Monica Mountains of Southern California. Jake lives on the property in a yurt he built with his partner, Julia, who is a nurse at a nearby hospital. For the most part, Jake's posts are little time capsules of the projects percolating here, beekeeping, kitten fostering, sourdough baking, composting toilets. But this week, he sat down with Julia to better understand what her life is like on those days when she leaves the commune and enters the very different world of a hospital in the crosshairs of the pandemic. So first, you'll hear my reflections on frontline workers, followed by a window into the life of our resident COVID nurse. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. This past week, Americans celebrated Memorial Day. We paused to honor and mourn the men and women of our armed forces who have died in service to our country. However, in this twisted time, a new global war conscripts a different type of soldier wearing a different sort of uniform. Instead of army greens, this infantry dons scrubs, aprons, Pullman Brown, and Dickey's denim. They are caring for our forgotten elders, stocking shelves and delivering supplies. They are toiling in fields, factories, and warehouses to ensure the nation's food chain functions. They are keeping our public transport on life support. They are nursing the ill and processing the dead. This letter is an elegy to them. These front lines are not the perilous but fortified desert camps. They are the subway tracks and outer borough hospitals, the slaughterhouses and prisons, the distribution centers and grocery stores. The heroism of this corps is not the glory stuff of Mandela and Chavez, though they are predominantly people of color. Their heroics are instead unheralded, nameless and fameless fighting an invisible enemy that cannot be slain, only grimly flattened. There is little grandeur to it, no medals, no pomp and circumstance, but in this moment of collective heartache, they have kept us going. 
If vulnerability is synonymous with courage, then these folks are amongst history's bravest. They have been dubbed essential workers, yet they are so under-resourced that Sujata Gidla, a New York City subway conductor, describes her colleagues not as essential, but as sacrificial. The list of those we now remember grows. Yolanda Woodbury, who worked as a bus driver in Philadelphia for 17 years. Rakan Kim, a letter carrier in the Bronx. Sal Sanchez, Eduardo Conchas de la Cruz, Tiburcio Rivera Lopez, who all worked at the same meatpacking plant in Colorado. As I type, I pull my buff mask over my stinging eyes in shame. The words of Gandhi haunt me. The true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. How can we let this happen? Memorial Day. Summer opens its doors. A white-walled Studebaker rolls down Main Street. Old Sergeant Murphy, the last of the greatest generation, rides shotgun waving a pint-sized flag. The band blares Sousa. The beach house is unshuttered. We take a wire brush to the barbecue. A flapping roadside balloon man touts a clearance sale at the local Ford dealer. No, not this year. It's bleak, but there is a greater calling. How do we properly honor these heroes, men and women who didn't enlist to be the bulwark against apocalyptical chaos, but nevertheless showed up for battle in paper armor? We can value thoughts and prayers, a commemorative wreath, and a trumpet's mournful taps, but our hearts know this is not enough. The lucky undrafted must undergo a deep moral inventory to determine how to fittingly exalt these inadvertent warriors, some of whom have made the ultimate sacrifice just by showing up for work. It cannot be a mere gesture, a flimsy meme, or this insubstantial recording. For gratitude is the work and action we undertake that recognizes the gift that we have been given. It begins with the explicit recognition that sanitation workers, emergency room nurses, grocery clerks, and meatpackers have always been essential. They did not enlist for heroism, nor court the grandiosity of the Blue Angels. In fact, in our hero worship, we risk absolving our own complicity in the atrocity of our structural failures. What our essential workers desperately require is protective gear, a raise, comprehensive health care, proper sick leave, and organizations to advocate on their behalf. They deserve access to well-being, movement, restoration, and nutrition that reduce conditions of comorbidity, stress, and anxiety. And yes, they warrant the respect and support of our government, the most rudimentary return of their tax dollars. If we are to honor them, then we must demand that our leadership provide these basic needs, and where they cannot, we must ask ourselves to furnish them where we can. Patriotism is not protesting mask wearing on the Capitol steps. It is sacrificing so someone else's child you don't know in another state can have health insurance. If there is any small tribute we can muster, it is to put aside our petty differences and individual material needs to find common decency, to better align our human condition with our highest principles. For to honor the other is to honor the self, not only because we all share a divine nature, but because our very existence depends on them. 
Let this day of remembrance draw upon the phantoms of our past and harness its pain to project a world that narrows the disparity of the human experience towards justice. So, who are you, and how long have you been a nurse? Mm, I'm Julia, and uh, I've been a nurse since 2014. What was your first job as a nurse? Uh, my first job as a nurse was in a unit called uh, Subacute uh, that housed patients with a common diagnosis of respiratory failure. And they all had tracheostomies. Uh, which are used for the entrance of air into the lungs. Many were what you would call on life support, and they used mechanical ventilation. I developed an ethical dilemma around that, especially now thinking about how much we need ventilators for people who have COVID, but some are being used for people who are in permanently vegetative states. So I, I went on to work in the hospital setting where people had a better prognosis. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you work in some pretty dark environments, and we live here in this yurt in Santa Monica Mountains. Sometimes you slip out of here at 5 in the morning, and I go on with my day, and it's so easy for me to forget that you've left our tranquil world and have plunged into this totally different universe, especially now, you know, because sometimes you go and, and you're working on the front lines of this global pandemic. So could you describe for me what it's like on a day when you get assigned to the COVID unit, starting from when you arrive in the morning at the hospital? So I arrived to work and uh, it's different now because I don't go to my assigned unit every time uh, we, we get floated. Um, and it, it's not like you're on a cloud. It just means you're going somewhere else. And um, so we get rotated. Um, in the beginning, it was infrequent. It seemed that there wasn't as many cases, and now it's more frequent. I would say uh, every other shift, every few shifts. Um, so I get there, and uh, I find out I'm going on the COVID unit. I try not to react so that I can start the day off strong and be prepared uh, without an emotional heaviness, I guess you'd say. And um, I pay a visit to uh, the Corona Boutique um, before going where they, they give us a special mask, um, a hair bouffant, and I borrow some scrubs and they give a paper bag where I keep my supplies. Uh, we've all been a little late to work because of this, um, and it's okay. it's okay. Sometimes my borrowed scrubs are a little more cute than the ones I came in with. So I go to the bathroom to change um, where there hasn't been a table set up yet. So putting on my clothes one limb at a time, kind of like a, I'm doing some hopscotch situation. Um, and then I, I pass the locker room and the break room where there's a display of desserts that look like it's a Thanksgiving all over again. 
um, which I think is a real danger. And that's because all the nurses are getting free baked goods these days? We are. Blessing and a curse. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about some of the patients or what the experience is like once you're, you're trying to treat patients in, a, in this setting. Well, we're all walking in the room looking like astronauts. Um, we've got a mask on a mask and a face shield over the masks. Um, we've got uh, gowns that we put on. So already there's a level of disconnection there. Uh, we want to stay in the room as short amount of time as possible. Um, and um, it's uncomfortable in, in, in this equipment. I've gotten, I've gotten more used to it. I've worn it before with a lot, of, a lot of other highly transmissible diseases. However, this one's a little more packed on. And, uh, you know, wearing these masks and I really can't, I can't escape my, my garlic lunch, um, even if I try. You've described it, you said astronaut, and some of the things you've described, it almost is like preparing for a spacewalk. You've, you've told me about how you kind of have to plan everything out so much in advance before you go into the room. Why is, why is that? Yeah, we, we're instructed to uh, cluster our care uh, to minimize exposure. In fact, there's been a lot of new doctor's orders, and one I saw recently was a nursing communication order that said, um, please cluster care. It's okay that you don't go into the room as often as you would with other patients into something that avail. So there's a lot of preparation that we do before we go in the room. And what are patients like in the COVID unit? What's kind of the vibe, so to speak? I say they're tired. They're not expressive in the way that they might be otherwise. Um, they're definitely in an energy conservation mode. Um, a lot of them are hypoxic, which means that oxygen might not be going to the microvasculature in their brain, which makes them more tired and their cognitive function is diminished. There's a huge element of this situation that makes it harder for everybody, I think, is that they don't have visitors. They don't have their families with them and that support system I think they feel very alone. Even the patients who don't have COVID right now are feeling very alone because they can't have their visitors there and in a time that they want them the most, which means that nurses must take it upon themselves to give a little extra TLC, um, even if we're dressed as astronauts and we, we can't give as much therapeutic touch basically avoid contamination for everybody, I guess. And how about the nurses in the break room? The break room is like when you get out of work and you go home and you take your bra off and you're, you just put your pajamas on and you get in your soft, cozy bed. Okay, it's not like that. The break room is... Is, is a break, um, and we go there to to vent at each other, and everyone receives it. We know what the other person's talking about, 
And it's like, normally when complaining, the culture of complaining can get to be a little excessive in any workforce. For us, it's it's our way of, of bonding in some ways. And we hear each other and then we make light of it. And we eat very quickly and we're glad to finally have taken our masks off, <laughs> which we wear for, which I wear for 12 hours. What was the first COVID patient that kind of really struck you emotionally? The first time I was assigned to the COVID unit, um, I went to the ICU, which is where you'll find the most sick patients. And uh, there was a lot of patients who had comorbidities, which meant that they're a little more immunosuppressed. And you would you would expect that. Um, but there was a patient who was who had very little um, medical history. And she was pregnant uh, five months. Um, she was sedated, so she was non-responsive. And receiving mechanical ventilation. She was sedated because she was receiving mechanical ventilation, which sometimes go together because of patients' um, bodies basically refusing the vents. It's an unnatural way of breathing. Um, so she had a fever and she was sweating and despite her sedation there was still anxiety flowing through her body and you can see that um and did you feel that you were able to give her the care that she needed no that's the hardest part um you never really finish the job where you say, all right, well, you do when, when patients are ready to go home, but they're not going to go home from the ICU, that's for sure. Um, that, that one was the first one um, on my first COVID day, which really brought me to reality pretty quickly. Before that, I had thought that it was going to be like the other infectious diseases that I've been in contact with, how can it be so different? Nursing has always been challenging. It's always been threatening to my own health. Um, and then it kicked in, I think, on that day from that patient. Um, there, there hasn't been a ton of patients who have had COVID and also really shocked me Um because of how much exposure I've had before with people who had been um, ill. But, yeah, there was there was another one who had um, basically a tube in every orifice and, and a reaction on her skin from medication. And it just, and COVID, you know, and it just looked like the cascade has reached a point of no return. Otherwise, I think the patients who will be recovering from COVID are mostly just how I described before, exhausted and, and just trying to catch their breath and also dealing with the stigma of having something and 
and not knowing how to return to life in their families and their homes without threatening their loved ones with it. Yeah, that's a good transition because I think you've told me once or twice about nurses talking about the walk of shame um, when they get home. Yeah, the naked walk of shame. Oh, the naked walk of shame. (laughs) What is the naked walk of shame? Well, you don't go in the house with what you came out of the house with because you don't know what's what's on you. Um, I mean, I feel like even at work, I'm I'm just showering in bleach wipes or showering everything in bleach wipes. Um, But it's just that the invisibility of the microorganisms. I mean you you never know and that's what's going on in society as well you don't know if your breath came out of your mask and jumped onto the next person six feet away it's you don't know so back to how you get home it's I just I make sure to clean every part of me and, and use a neti pot and um <laughs> Uh, and then bag my clothes up and throw them in the wash. And there's another question I think you might ask because we spoke about it, how I'm still with other people outside in the real world um, and how that feels. Um, I feel very fortunate to be living here um, with the family here who feel confident in their health. I think that's a a major factor in this situation. Um, That's how I get by, is by feeling confident in my health. Um, And so I don't feel like I have to walk on eggshells with who I'm quarantined with here, even though I'm the furthest away from quarantined as as anybody could be when I'm not at home because I'm exposed to them. But that's not the case with all your friends. Right. Mm, Friends are starting to see each other again. Friends are starting to hug each other again. I come from a world where people play together, do acrobatics together, dance together. And uh, I don't see that happening again for me very soon. I feel like I have to be extra careful when... Maybe my personality type isn't really that way. In fact, it definitely isn't. But in this situation, I have to be. Um, I think the one of the hard, harder, hardest parts for me is my parents. Um, I'm always going to be exposed to patients who have COVID. Like there's no end in sight for me. And therefore, there might not be an end in sight for my parents, who I'm very close to. And that's probably the scariest thought. This brings me to something else, which is the the kind of fuzziness that is that exists around a, who is a COVID patient, who is not a COVID patient. I always here at home imagined that you were either assigned to treating COVID patients or you weren't, and now. I'll, I have a sense it's a lot murkier about that. Can you talk to me about non-COVID patients in the COVID unit and COVID patients who end up outside the COVID unit? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, the patients are who don't have COVID but are suspected to have them are called PUIs, patient under investigation. Um, almost every patient now who comes to the hospital is considered a PUI because we test everybody. And um, so they almost all go through the COVID unit unless we have a rapid test that tells us sooner that they're they're clear, despite symptoms proving it or disproving it. Um, I think one of the scariest ones was the one that you actually had before you ever worked the COVID unit with the patient who tested negative so many times. And so that's what I was going to get to next is that um, then you have people who have symptoms and test negative on certain exams, I mean, on certain, on certain swabs, they're called um, oropharyngeal swabs or nasopharyngeal swabs. Basically, it goes through the nose or through the mouth to the pharynx, and that's where they swab them. And there's a rapid test that'll tell you in a few hours if they're positive, and then there's another one that's more conclusive that'll tell you in a day. Um, so I've had, I had a patient who had all the symptoms. Um, so I took all the precautions, thankfully. However, he tested negative three times. It's just sketchy. You, you can't trust that. You, and, and the nurses know better now. Um, it's called a false negative. I mean, three false negatives. Come on. And then, and then it was tested a fourth time. Doctor said, I put it in so deep you couldn't hide corona from that swab. And so, you know, he, yeah, so he, he was positive. And there's other situations, other stories. Nurses have told me, I had a patient who had a false negative, and and then they test positive, and then they might test negative after they've test positive. So, the inconclusiveness of these tests is me- means that we have to just always take extra precaution. Yeah, you're never, there's n- even, even when you're not in the COVID unit, often you're wondering if you're handling a COVID patient. Yeah. Well, that's maybe one misunderstanding. What do you think other people might misunderstand about being a nurse during this time? Nursing has always been challenging. Um, I'm really grateful that I'm receiving love uh, at this time and recognition. Uh, but because our hospital hasn't been inundated with with COVID patients, it feels generally just like nursing work, except I'm an astronaut also. It hasn't changed dramatically except for that it's this it's just this contemporary indomitable disease that we don't have a clear treatment for. I feel a little more helpless. For another patient, I might say, you're having GI complications. Let's do a little uh, massage on your belly. Let's do some extra hydration. Let's go for a walk. Um, you have pain, let's go, let's breathe into the area. Um, there's a medication to help you for that. You have a urinary tract infection. There's a list of medications to help you with that. You have another kind of a pneumonia. There's, there's antibiotics, broad spectrum antibiotics that help with that. 
um, you have influenza, a different influenza. There's a antiviral for that. Uh, with COVID, I, I, I feel a, a loss of resources. Um, you know, you can't go for a walk when you have COVID. You, you, you're one may be too hard for you. You'll have something called dyspnea on exertion, trouble breathing when you're exerting yourself even dyspnea with speech. Um, so the the independent nursing measures, which are the ones that you don't need a doctor's orders for, and the non-pharmacological methods, even the pharmacological treatments, all just seem questionable. But otherwise, it's oxygen, monitoring... And if your respirations uh, exceed 30 per minute, if you're breathing faster than 30 breaths per minute, or if your oxygen saturation goes below, say, 90 to 92%, then we transfer you to a higher level of care, and there's a possibility for intubation. It's it's kind of extreme from from stable COVID to unstable COVID, COVID. Yeah, it's almost like people are just in this weird holding cell. Exactly. Because your options are either just watch and wait or stick a bunch of tubes in. Yeah. What will you remember most about being a nurse during this time? There's a couple things. Um, I would say, one, the recognition. Um it feels like my friends have reached out to me and there's been measures done by organizations um, that that give attention to nurses um, now more than ever. Where was all this before COVID, huh? Um, but that has been really appreciated. I mean, y- you have been very supportive. Uh, I appreciate that. Um I get help from the kittens. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> um, and and it's it was just a shock on the on the system of the hospital. I mean, just abruptly making three units for COVID patients for just for them, depending on the level of care they needed. I mean, almost overnight, we're like moving patients around as if there's like a fire going on. And the the mask wearing, just the face hiding, which is going on universally. So it's not just us, but that really changed how you work with people. Yeah, you said, you told me that everyone has their name written on their face now. Because <laughs> they have it written on their mask. Yeah, yeah. We've been, they've been sanitizing our masks so that we can reuse them. So we put our name on it. And so... Got to make sure the name on the masks matches the name of the badge. Otherwise, you're going to have a problem. And the surprises that come our way, um, that we're a first world country and and we're being really challenged uh, to use the resources we have um, when they're sort of dwindling. How do you want to end this? I know how I want to end this. What can you do? 
How can you deal with it? There's been so much analysis about this situation, um, finding the positives and the negatives about it, uh, looking in every corner of what it all means. But the way that I really do get through is through my practice outside of home. And I wish this upon everybody because of how fulfilling it is and how much easier it is to go to work, whether there was COVID or not COVID, how much easier it is to show up anywhere and do anything. Um, and a lot of these practices, no surprise, coincide exactly with the messages that the teachers of commune offer, which is, you know, I'll just list them real quick. I'm not going to go into detail, but to get in bed early, to sleep enough, eating vegetables and whole foods, minimizing consumption of sugar, exposure to cold water, and breathing techniques so that our lungs are strong. It's all things that have been repeated over and over, and it's just no surprise that I, I'm not going to embellish it. it. It's exactly what it is, and that and that's and that's all you get during COVID. That's your safety net. I'm I'm really grateful that that I've prioritized that, and I wish it upon everybody. Thanks, Julia. I love you. I love you. Thanks for listening to today's show. This episode is a bit of a different format for us, and I'd love to hear what you think. So please feel free to email me with comments, suggestions, and critiques at jeffk at onecommune.com. I try to respond to every single email. And you can sign up for the Commune Weekly Newsletter, which includes both my Commusings article and Jake's lab post for the week. Just go to onecommune.com, fill out the form all the way at the bottom. You can also follow us on Instagram at One Commune. That's it from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. Mm-hmm.